0: scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Just a reminder of where we are in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We came to the end last week of those three cycles in which Jesus was plainly teaching who He was, His identity, and describing His mission. He's the Christ, the Messiah, who's come to lay down His life and rescue people by virtue of His atoning death on a cross, and He would rise on the third day. All these things he was plainly teaching and plainly seeing, but we saw through those three cycles, beginning halfway through Mark chapter 8 and through the end of chapter 10, that the disciples weren't getting it. They were, in fact, uh, you know, really just doing, you know, crazy things, living very, doing very selfish and self-centered things. And then uh, Jesus would give a teaching on what it means to follow him, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Of course, that Series of three cycles we saw began with the healing of a blind man and ended with the healing of blind Bartimaeus to kind of give us a, a reminder and a picture of the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, we too can experience great spiritual blindness, even as the disciples exhibited great spiritual blindness. We saw last week that the healing of blind Bartimaeus, that his spiritual insight vastly exceeded. That of the sighted disciples of Jesus. And Jesus is now making his way into Jerusalem, and he's no longer hiding his identity from people. Right before the middle of Mark chapter 8, he had been silencing people whenever they would identify who he was. Here, now, he's no longer hiding his identity before the crowds, he is receiving worship from the people. It's actually the first time in the Gospels that Jesus rides something other than a boat, you know, when he's out on the water. Even then, not all the time. But, you know, it's on land, it's the first time that he's not walking. And he's riding a donkey, a young donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is being fulfilled right in front of the people's eyes. Not many hours from now, after his arrest, Jesus is going to be asked a very direct question by the high priest. Are you the Christ? And Jesus is going to reply unequivocally, I am. Nothing is veiled anymore. And yet, the people still aren't seeing it. They didn't get it. They were saying so many of the right things. But they weren't getting it right. Why? because they were living in a rival story. They were failing to see their place in the true story that was unfolding right in front of them. When I was in high school, my U.S. history teacher was Mr. Totillion, Mr. T. I didn't do well in his class. Part of it could have been his teaching method, he would literally write on the board every word of his lecture as he was saying it. It was unbelievable. He would, he would write and he would speak and he would have you know, one panel, then he'd go on to the next panel, then he'd go on to the next panel, then he'd come back and erase and write on the... And you know, that was fascinating for about the first ten minutes and then everybody was asleep. I didn't do well in Mr. T's class. Could have been in part, you know, the way he taught, but the biggest issue was not with him, it was with me. I didn't see my place in the story that he was writing on the board. It was the story of the country in which I live. But I was living in a rival story. My story was all about you know, wrestling and football and where were the parties going to be that weekend. The story on the board, the story of the country in which I lived, was of little value to me because I was living in my own story. The Bible's a story. It's one true story from beginning to end. And it's unfolding in history. And it was unfolding here in a very unique and special way on that first Palm Sunday. And the people who were there weren't getting it. They were failing to see themselves accurately in that story. They didn't see themselves in the story on the board. The story that was unfolding right in front of them. They were living in a rival story with an ending far less glorious than the story that was unfolding right in front of them. Every one of us gets caught up in our own rival stories. Every one of us. I don't care if you've been a Christian your entire life or if you're not a Christian believer right now. We all get caught up in our own rival stories. Some of you are not followers of Jesus Christ, and you are dangerously close to missing the glorious ending of the one true story of God and His glory. But many of us are believers, and we don't live in light of that glorious story. It doesn't shape the way in which we live out our day-to-day lives. We too get caught up in rival stories, and we'll unpack more about what those are like throughout the course of this sermon. But I want us to wrestle this morning with rival stories, and the true story, and how to embrace it, how to enter into it, how to live it. So those would be our three points. First, we'll look at our rival stories. We'll see how much we're like the crowd. And then secondly, we'll look at the one true story, and then finally, we will end by asking how we can make it our own. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. Lord, we're all here in various ways, having been perhaps caught up in stories that fall short of your glory. Stories in which we're seeking our own. Lord, some of us, are we just feel like we're doing great. And others of us, Lord, we feel empty. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to see clearly the one true story and to seek to find our place in it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our rival stories. first of all, what do I mean by a rival story? What I mean is this: a rival story is an alternate vision of the good life and an alternate set of beliefs on how to achieve it. right An alternate vision of the good life, and an alternate definition of what makes life worth living, an alternate means to find meaning and purpose, an alternate way to find ultimate joy, a rival story, a rival vision of the good life, and a rival set of beliefs on how to attain it. The disciples and the crowd in this story were living in a rival story. Now we've been unpacking that over the last few weeks, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but let's just think for a minute about the setting, about the things that these people were saying, and the things that they were doing. First, the setting. The setting was the time of the Passover. This was the annual Passover celebration for the Jews. It was the time in which they commemorated and celebrated God's deliverance of His people out of Egypt, out of the oppressive rule of Egypt. So many years prior, pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem, residents were also streaming out of the city. You know, there was this buzz about Jesus, everybody was hearing. So the text tells us that the crowd was coming out behind him, it was following behind him and and coming out and going on ahead of him. There was just this massive crowd of people that were there around Jesus. It was the time of the Passover. What were they saying? Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 of Mark 11, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a direct quote from Psalm 118, which is one of the kingship psalms in the canon of the psalms. The kingdom of David language, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, reinforces that idea of this Davidic king Who would come to Israel? So that's what they were saying. That was the setting. What about the things that they were doing? Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, the other gospel writers get more specific than what Mark does here. They point out that those were palm branches that they were spreading on the road. Palm branches had zero significance, religiously speaking, when it came to the Passover celebration. It had massive political significance. Just 200 years prior to Jesus, Simon Maccabeus had led a revolt. Successful revolt for a time. And Simon was honored with the waving of palm branches. In fact, during that brief period in which the Jewish people experienced some freedom. They minted their own coins. Guess what symbol was on the coin? A palm branch. So Simon would eventually be defeated, but now Jesus is coming. This king. This one who is bringing the kingdom of David. And they're laying down palm branches in front of him. And did I mention the timing? The Passover? When they celebrated the deliverance of God's people from oppressive rule. They had their alternate story that they were living in, a rival story, a rival vision of the good life, a rival set of beliefs on how to attain the good life. Their vision of the good life, restore the kingdom to Israel. Their belief on how to get there, drive out the Romans. And Jesus is the one who's going to lead the way. And we're going to see in the next point that they were so close. They were saying so many of the right things, and yet they were so far from the truth. But first, what about us? We have our own rival stories, each and every one of us. We get caught up in our own idea and our own vision of the good life, of what will bring ultimate meaning and purpose and fulfillment, and joy, we have our vision of that, and we also have our alternate set of beliefs on how to attain it. So some examples. First one's you know kind of silly, right? Alternate vision of the good life, get filthy rich. An alternate set of beliefs on how to attain it, lie, cheat, and steal. right? Plenty of movies about that. We don't maybe put ourselves in that category so much, but what about this? Rival vision for the good life. Live a pain-free, pleasure-filled life. Rival set of beliefs on how to attain it. Have as much sex. Take as many drugs. Eat as much food. Get as much stuff as you possibly can. Or here's a rival vision of the good life. Be insta-perfect, right? Put out the perfect image on social media. Rival set of beliefs for how to attain it, starve yourself, or sculpt yourself. Rival vision for the good life, be the smartest person in the room. Rival set of beliefs on how to attain it, get the best grades in school, be widely read, and make sure everyone sees that your intellect is just a cut above everyone else. Or, you know, a little bit better, Rival vision of the good life, just be healthy and fit. That's good. Rival set of beliefs on how to get there, you know, eat well, exercise. That's good. Rival vision for the good life, the thing that will bring ultimate fulfillment and meaning and purpose to you, the thing that will make life worth living, have a successful and fulfilling career. How to get there? You know, work hard, make sacrifices, even if it means sacrificing your family on the idol of success. Rival vision for the good life? Be a person of influence. How do you get there? Well, you know, invest your time and your, your treasure in your community or in your church. Rival vision for the good life, the thing that will bring you ultimate fulfillment and joy. Have kids who believe. How do you get there? Pray for them. Pray with and for them. Bring them to the church. Teach them. The Bible. Rival vision for the good life, the thing that will bring your life meaning and make it worth living. Have a marriage that sings. How do you get it? Oh, marriage seminars and be fastidious about a date night. I mean, really be focusing on conflict resolution. All those things that are good and necessary. But the moment they become ultimate things in our life, we've discovered that we've adopted and are living in a rival vision of the good life. And Jesus has a place in that story, doesn't he? Jesus's role in that story is to bring us the salvation that we want. I have my vision for the good life. Your job, Jesus, is to ensure that I achieve it. They had their vision for the good life in Mark chapter 11. Drive out the Romans, restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus, you have a place in that story. And we have a vision for kids who believe. We have a vision for a marriage that sings. We have a vision for a meaningful, flourishing career. And Jesus, you have a place in that story. Jesus said to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? We want positions of power at your right and left. Jesus said to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus, I want to see. And Jesus comes to each and every one of us through his word and says, what do you want me to do for you? And we're tempted to say, and often do say, Jesus, I want you to bring salvation to my story. Listen to what Jesus says to you. I have a better story. I have a better story. It's the one true story. So let's take a look at that. Second, the true story. What is the story that was unfolding right before the crowd as Jesus made His way into Jerusalem? First of all, He is the King. He is the King. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, among other many other prophecies in the Old Testament. Let me just read Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 because other Gospel writers quote it here. In their account of the, uh, the, the triumphal entry, they actually, as a sidebar, will quote it. Hey everybody, here's what's happening. Mark doesn't, but let me read it for us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's what's happening right here in front of them. Jesus is the king. He is the one who is in complete control of everything. We saw that in the first few verses of chapter 11. Jesus said, I want you to go in, you're going to find this, you're going to do this. When they say this, you say this, and then bring it back. And that's exactly how it played out. Jesus is the one who is control of everything. As Bartimaeus said in our sermon last week, you are the son of David. You are the king. They were saying that in Mark 11, but they were missing it. They were so far short who Jesus really was as King. Second, He did come to bring salvation. They were crying out, Save us! And that's why He came. He came on a donkey. He came in humility, seeking to serve. He would ride that donkey, as it were, all the way to the cross. From the cross, He would cry out, It is finished. The promised Messiah, the true King, suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the one who was slain from before the foundation of the world, whose blood was the ransom for many, had finished His work. They cried, save us. A week later, they would cry, crucify Him. They would even say, in one of the saddest ironies in the history of humanity, Matthew 27 tells us, they would say, may His blood be on us and on our children, which was exactly what they needed to truly be saved. Jesus is the king. He did come to save. He now invites sinners like us, rebels, those who, if we were there, would have been crying out, Crucify him. He now invites us into this story. He offers forgiveness through faith in Him. He offers adoption into God's family. He provides His Spirit to guide and to comfort us. He gives us hope and a future because He will return to make all things new. Revelation 21.5 Behold, I make all things new. The earth will be renewed. Prophecies of Isaiah point to that. Isaiah 35 6 and 7. Read that later when you have time. Our bodies will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15. Read that as well. Our joy will be complete. Evil will be judged. And we get a little hint of that in verse 11. We'll talk more about that next week. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, he went out. It's a little picture of judgment beginning with the household of God but He will return. He will make all things new. This is the true story. I love it whenever I um, am introduced to or discover a new artist. and One of my favorite new artists is Carolyn Cobb. Carolyn Cobb wrote a song titled There is a Mountain. Let me just read the, the bridge from that song. The king bends low to wash our feet, to give himself as an offering, to lead us home to that wedding feast. We taste it now. At last we'll eat of that richest food, of that well-aged wine. The shroud will lift, our tears he'll dry. Come hungry souls, be satisfied both now and forevermore. It captures it, the true story. The story that makes life worth living. That's the story that's unfolding before you right now. Every culture invents a story to make sense of reality. Even our own culture tells a story. Now the story it's telling is that there is no story. There's no ultimate meta-narrative. But there is an overarching story. It's the story of God and His glory. It's the story of the people that He came to seek and save. It's the story of the world that He is making new. It is the story that makes sense of all the other stories. It's the story to which every happy ending Points. Is it too good to be true? Almost. Is it too hard to believe? Believe it. Believe it. We have our rival stories. But there is one true story. How do you enter it? Third, how can you make this story your own? Admit you've been living in a rival story. Admit you've been living in a rival story. Admit you've had an an alternate vision of the good life. Admit that you've been living by an alternate set of beliefs on how to get there. How do you know that you've been doing that? And I want to point you first to something that you might not ultimately go to. You might ask yourself, well, what have I been thinking? I want to challenge you to ask yourself, what have you been feeling? I want you to examine your emotions. If you find yourself, like so many in our culture do, anxious and alone, because after all, if there is no meta-narrative, if there is no story that makes sense of reality, if it's your job to create meaning for yourself, you will be anxious. And if you live in a culture in which image is everything and you can't let your true self be seen, you will be alone. If you are anxious and alone, you have an indicator that you are living in a rival story. If you are filled with anger and frustration or disillusionment and deep sadness, if you find yourself at any point experiencing those kinds of emotions, it can be an indicator that you are living in a rival story with your alternate set of beliefs on how to achieve that good life and you're just not getting it. Somebody's getting in the way. Something's blocking the path. You're anxious. You're afraid. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're disappointed. You're disillusioned. You're sad. These are indicators that you're living in a rival story. Examine your emotions, not just your thinking. And examine your relationships. Do you really see the people around you? Are you putting their needs above your own? Are you among them as one who serves? Not. It may be an indication that you're using them as a means to acquiring, achieving your vision of the good life. Examine your emotions, examine your relationships, and Even as Christians, we need to recognize that we fall into these very same patterns. We fall into these very same things. And we expect Jesus to bring salvation to our rival story. That's what makes us different from the non-Christian. A non-Christian is pursuing their rival story with their alternate set of beliefs on how to get it. As Christians, we get caught up in our rival stories and our alternate set of beliefs on how to get it. And we ask Jesus to come in and help us get there. We're king. Not Jesus, but we'll have Jesus to save us now. Every one of us needs to admit that we get caught up in living in rival stories. And then every one of us needs to receive Jesus as our king. Receive Jesus as your king. That's a good thing. Right? You you, you hear, oh, I want Jesus to be my Savior. I don't want Him to be my Lord or my King. Because that means I have to change the way I live. Or that means I can't do fun things anymore. Or, Man, I mean, think about it. If Jesus is King, and if He has a story that we're invited into, a story whose ending is so much greater than any story we could ever write, how is it not good news, the best possible news, in fact, entering into what it means to flourish as a human being to submit to Jesus as, his, as our King, on His terms. This is why I, I love, <laughs> love the fact that we sang Joy to the World this morning. Aaron texted me earlier this week and said, you know, last Sunday, you said we should sing Joy to the World year-round. Did you really mean that? I said, yes, I did. He said, good, because I was kind of thinking well, it would fit really good this week. In talking about the triumphal entry, and I said, You are exactly right. It's a perfect hymn to be singing right now. Joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Right? Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, no thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. Who wouldn't want to live in a world like that? That's the one true story. That's the story that makes sense of every other story. That's the story in which all of our stories, as good as they may be, find their ultimate fulfillment and meaning. Are you paying attention to the story on the board? Are you seeing and listening to the story that's unfolding right before you? Receive Jesus as your King today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do thank You and we ask that You would help us. We thank You Lord, for inviting us into this true story. For calling us out of our rival stories that even on the best of days don't ultimately satisfy and certainly don't last forever. But instead, you invite us into a kingdom that is eternal. To find what it means to flourish under the rule of the one true King. To know the peace of not having to be our own saviors and lords, but instead... To rest in the only one who is. So, Lord, thank you for that. But help us to embrace this truth. Help us to entrust ourselves to you. Help us to embody, by the way in which we live and think and feel and act, the one true story the story of you and your glory. And we ask this in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.